So Philippians 1 and verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served for the advancement of the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of a selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether for false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that though your prayers, sorry, through your prayers and the help given by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for me and for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, my, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. You know what? Nobody could ever accuse Paul of being a pessimist. <laughs> he sat there shackled and chained between two Roman um, soldiers. And yet he's still able to write letters telling people, telling his friends that he is filled with joy. Now, is he just some sort of, is this some sort of bravado or some incurable optimism? Or, or perhaps he just doesn't realize the reality of the truth of the situation that he's actually facing himself? Actually, none of these things are true. He's actually... And, and actually, no, no, no doubt, most people looking at him probably even think that he, he is completely insane. But actually, Paul, Paul sees things very, very clearly. He loves others with a discerning love. We talked about that when we looked at verse 10. And he knows that the most important thing in this world is that people find Jesus Christ, that they understand the full message of the gospel he wants people to know about Jesus. We've, we've, we've as we've sang worship and the, and the words have come forward certainly are pointing us towards Jesus Christ. That's Paul's heart more than anything else in his life. The Jesus who left the glory of heaven, who came down to this world, 
who grew up to be a man, but who lived a perfect life, a guy who never sinned, a man who was both God yet man, and yet they still took him and they nailed him to a cross. And on that cross, as he hung and as he died, he died there not for his sin, but for your sin, for my sin. It's love that kept him there. It's love that took him there. But of course, the story doesn't finish there because Jesus rose again from the dead. And we're not worshiping some sort of dead person this morning. We're worshiping the living God, the one who is alive, who reigns in heaven. And Paul wants people to understand Jesus. He wants them to be grasped, to be captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's circumstances and his his personal comfort is actually irrelevant in the light of these great gospel truths. And amazingly, God uses the disaster, because that's what it seems to be, the disaster of his imprisonment to bring more and more people to know Jesus. I guess Paul's desire as a missionary maybe more than anything else, was to preach the gospel in Rome. Rome was a key city. It was the hub of the empire. And, and if Paul could, could really conquer Rome with the gospel, it could reach perhaps millions of people with this, this wonderful message of salvation. So Paul really wants to go to Rome as a preacher. Ironically, he's taken there as a prisoner. And Paul could have written a long letter of complaint. He has plenty of things that he could, he could make a fuss about. It could just have been one long, big, long, moaning letter. Instead, what you read is in verse 12, how Paul sums up everything that he has gone through in one very short statement. He says, that which has happened to me. That's it. That's what's happened to me. In fact, you can read a lot more detail about it if you turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter um, Acts chapter 21, verse 17, through to the end of the book, seven chapters just full of the story of all that Paul went through. For those who either don't know it or maybe haven't read it in a while, I'll give you the quick highlights. It started off with Paul being illegally arrested in the temple in Jerusalem. See, the Jews thought he was desecrating the temple by bringing Gentiles in there. And then the Romans thought that he was some sort of Egyptian renegade who was, who was trying to um, cause trouble and was perhaps on their most wanted list. So very quickly, Paul became the focus of attention, both of religious and also political plottings. Of course, neither of which are even true. But because of these things, Paul is kept a prisoner in Caesarea for two years Paul eventually appeals to Caesar, which is his right as a Roman citizen, and he is sent to Rome. But things just get worse because he hits a storm, not just any storm, a storm that actually ends up wrecking the entire boat. Thankfully, everybody is saved because God is with Paul and with the others in that boat. They are shipwrecked onto the island of Malta. He spends three months there. He finally gets to Rome. And all of that, Paul sums up with that which has happened to me. He might as well have stubbed his toe. But actually, all these things seem to be insignificant. Why? Because his attention is on Jesus Christ. That's where his focus is. 
and disastrous as these things may be, these set of circumstances look pretty miserable to most of us. In fact, they almost appear to be a failure, but not to the man who is single-minded for Jesus and for the gospel. He has got a tunnel vision focus on Jesus Christ. And yes, these things are going on in his peripheral vision. Yes, they're, he's not ignoring them completely, but actually they don't pull him down because Jesus is his attention. Jesus has got his focus above and beyond everything else. And Paul does not find his joy or even lose his joy on his circumstances, but he finds his joy in Christ and in winning others for Jesus. And that's how he keeps it as well. So if his circumstances actually help in the spread of the gospel, that is all that matters to him. And Paul discovers that his circumstances do exactly that. They open up a door into a new area of ministry that would never have been possible. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, probably one of the best preachers of the last century, arguably, I guess, Certainly a fan of Paul's, I know. He's really well known, but what is probably less well known is the story of his wife, Susanna. Early in their marriage, she had a debilitating chronic illness that often left her confined to her bed, meant she could actually rarely leave her home. And it looked as if that the only ministry that she would ever have would be to encourage her husband and to pray for his work. But God gave her a burden, he gave her a desire, and she began to share her husband's books with pastors who weren't able to afford them. And very quickly, this work began to grow. It became known as the Book Fund. And as this work of faith, this Book Fund provided thousands of books to pastors who needed these tools, who needed these resources to equip them in their work in preaching the gospel, in spreading the good news about Jesus. Literally hundreds of thousands of books were lent out and given out, all under the supervision of Mrs. Spurgeon from her home. A real pioneering ministry. And God is still looking for men and women who are willing to pioneer into new areas for the sake of the gospel. And sometimes God arranges circumstances so that we can do nothing else but pioneer. In fact, that's exactly how the gospel got to Philippa in the first place. Paul wanted to go to other places, but God repeatedly shut the doors into different areas. He wanted to go east into Asia. God said, no, go west, go into Europe. And sometimes God can use the strangers of tools or circumstances to help us pioneer the gospel. For Paul, it was prison. Last week, we've already mentioned what we heard Gemma's story of how God came into her life through a series of, of, of circumstances that you would not wish on anybody. And yet God can use anything to bring about glory to his name, to bring about the advancement of the gospel. What about for you? What is it for you? I wonder how things would change in your life if you saw life's challenges as opportunities for the gospel. 
How would that change the way you look at your situation or even the circumstance that you're in at the moment? And, and what I want to do for the remainder of our time together is just look at three things that shaped Paul's new ministry. None of these things you would pick or choose for yourself. The first is chains. The second is criticism or critics. And the third is chaos. How would, would you pick those? None of us would choose them. If you're praying for God, God, lead me in your direction, those will not be on your prayer list, I can assure you. Certainly not on mine anyway. And yet God can use anything. So first of all, Paul's chains, verse 12 to 14. You know, it's worth remembering that the same God who used Moses' rod and Gideon's jar and David's sling used Paul's chains. But these chains that were actually meant to bind Paul and hold him back, and they actually end up releasing him into a whole new ministry. You will notice that he does not complain about his chains, but rather he consecrates them over to God. And he asks God to use them for the advancement of the gospel. In fact, it was because of Paul's chains that he is able to get into contact with those who are not yet Christians. Can you imagine for a moment what it must have been like for Paul chained? I guess we can't really, but if we can try... Um, He's chained to two Roman soldiers, one on each side, 24 hours a day. Every six hours, that guard would change over, another one would come along. It meant that Paul had the opportunity to talk about Jesus to at least four people, and probably more, but at least four people every single day. Can you imagine for a moment what it must have been like for him to be one of those guards? And who do you feel most sorry for? <laughs> eh? Imagine being chained to this man who prays without ceasing, who is constantly talking to people about their spiritual condition, who is always writing out letters to churches. And the impact of Paul's speaking about Jesus Christ to these soldiers who are guarding him has got two implications. The first is this, it brings encouragement to other Christians to be bolder, to be more confident in their faith. It just excites them as they watch what Paul has gone through and that Paul is able just to keep going. In fact, to bring the gospel to every area. And it just encourages others to do exactly the same thing. But the second thing it does, it, it, it very, very quickly, many of these soldiers and guards come to faith in Jesus Christ. And something that would never have happened if Paul had been a free man and Paul has access into a place that he could possibly, or at least he probably would never have been able to reach into. And he literally is able to change the Roman guards from the inside out. But the second impact that Paul has was he, in this particular ministry in, in prison is that Paul is given contact with the Roman officials as well. Now, being a Roman prisoner, it means that he has, his case is a really important one. And the Roman government has, has, and the Roman government has to give an official opinion about this new sect, this new Christian sect that is beginning to spring up. So the court's officials are forced to study the doctrines of the Christian faith. You can only imagine how delighted Paul must have been. 
as these guys are talking about the integrities of, the, of, 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 of Christ and the Christian faith and just debating these things, Paul must have been in an absolute element, and Paul sees his chains as an opportunity once again. I wonder sometimes, do you feel as if you're in chains, perhaps because of a situation or a circumstance that you're, that you're facing? It may be events beyond your control. It may be a health condition or a situation that, that seems to hold you back or, or just to, to be a disadvantage to you. But just never, never underestimate what God can do. Susanna Wesley was a stay-at-home mom. She had 19 kids. Now, she, as much as anybody... <laughs> could be forgiven for saying she felt chained sometimes. I don't know how she did it, but listen, out of that family came Charles and John Wesley, whose combined ministry transformed the world as they knew it in their generation, in their time. God can use anyone and everyone for His glory Never, never underestimate what God can do through you, even if it feels unimportant. The secret is this, to have a single mind, a Christ-centered mind. And you, you look at your circumstances as this God-given opportunity for the advancement of the gospel with the expectation that God can do the impossible. Instead of complaining about what God has not done, or even what God has done. See every situation as an opportunity for God to work, to open doors into places that the gospel would never normally be able to reach into. And listen, your chains may not be that dramatic, may not even be, be that difficult for you, but there's no reason why God cannot use you and even your problems for the advancement of the gospel. On Friday night, as we were praying, a number of the prophetic words were talking about fire. The thing is, I think it was Mark was saying, when the fire is in a building and it begins to, to burn, what happens? It creates this little vacuum, and if you open the doors, it just bursts out. They're called backdraft. It just bursts out. And the prophetic word was that the doors of this building, of our church, prophetically would be burst open with evangelistic fire as God bursts out. Listen, we need that individually and corporately that we just burst out, that we bring the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, God can use you. Wherever you are, your workplace, your university, your school, God can and He will use you if you are available to Him. And listen, don't be surprised when He does. God is an expert of working out His plans even even if evil people want your very worst. The second thing is Paul's critics, verse 15 to 19. You know, it seems hard to believe that anyone would ever oppose Paul, but the church in Rome was really quite divided. Some preached Christ sincerely and wanted to see people saved. Others actually were very insincere. All they really wanted was to make as much trouble for Paul as they possibly could, and they were more interested in, in their selfish purposes. Most likely, they're from the legalistic wing of the church, um, people who opposed Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, and particularly his grace message. 
and they practiced a form of religious politics that was just extremely dangerous. So they'd go around asking people, whose side are you on? Are you on Paul's side? Are you on our side? Make a choice. Who, 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 who's, whose little group are you going to join? Paul's or ours? There's no mention of Jesus Christ. There's no mention of, of the kingdom of God. Sadly, we can even find that today with denominations, with, with groups of people that call people to their particular little group or their little clique. We need to be pointing people to Jesus to be building God's kingdom. And listen, we must guard our hearts as much as anyone else that we never play that game. Paul certainly doesn't. And Paul looks at his critics as another opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. He's actually not, not even that bothered about these people, even if they're genuine believers or not. It doesn't seem to worry him too much. These guys who are preaching um, Jesus because of selfish reasons. The most important thing is that these people, that people hear the good news about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether they're for him or against him. There's actually no envy in Paul's heart. There doesn't seem to be. All that matters to Paul is that Jesus Christ is preached. You know, the gospel is wonderful news. It's life. It's hope. It's everything. We need to get it out there, into our homes, into our schools, our universities, into our workplaces, into our community. It's wonderful hope for people. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are loved by God. Listen, you have a destiny in heaven. So if you're not rejoicing, you must be forgetting the message of the cross. Surely it should bring joy to our hearts. Let's remember Jesus. And so often we can get so caught up with the secondary issues, with things and the troubles of our life, but even actually with doctrinal issues. And, and, and actually churches sometimes can get almost divided over, over a particular area of doctrine, and we put it up more important. Listen, there's only one thing, is that Jesus Christ died and rose again, that he is exalted. We get that in first place in our mind, in our thinking, in the way we're talking, and other things come in secondary to that. This, of course, is no new thing. It's well documented down through history of many even great men of God who, who had many things they disagreed about. John Wesley and George Whitfield disagreed quite strongly sometimes over doctrine. There's, there's good accounts of them actually having debates or sometimes arguments over, over different issues. Both of them, however, preached to thousands of people, many of them seeing many people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's, it's reported once that somebody asked Wesley if he expected to see Whitfield in heaven, the evangelist replied, no, I do not. Then he asked, do, do you think Whitfield is a converted man? He says, of course he's a converted man, Wesley replied, but I don't expect to see him in heaven because he will be so near the throne of God and I will be so far away, I haven't got a hope of being able to see him. And listen, even though these men have a great deal of differences, even though they disagreed on some maybe fairly fundamental things, there's nothing of envy within Wesley's heart and nothing at all to oppose 
the work of Whitfield in his ministry. It's how we live. We exalt Jesus and other things fade away. Criticism is always hard to take, particularly if you're going through a difficult situation as Paul was. But Paul is able to rejoice even in the face of criticism because he is single-minded in Christ. He lives with hope in the gospel. And Paul is not depending on his dwindling resources, but actually on the dependable, on the generous, on the unlimited resources of God, of the ministry through the Holy Spirit and his passion and his desire for Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. The third thing is Paul's crisis. Verse 20 to 26. You know, I can guarantee you one thing. If you want to kill just a perfectly polite conversation, just bring up the subject of death. It just stops things in the tracks pretty much. Nobody, nobody likes to talk about these things, but actually for Paul, that is a reality in his life. He lives with it. In fact, if things don't go well for him at this particular moment, remember, he's still a prisoner. He's facing trial. He could be, he could be convicted of, as a traitor and then executed. It's quite possible that that's the way things will go for Paul. But Paul's body is not his own. In fact, or, sorry, Paul's body is not his own or even his own desires. His desire was for Jesus Christ, that Jesus would be magnified in his life. So through chains, Christ was known. Through criticism and critics, Christ was preached. And now, through Paul's crisis, Christ was magnified. Actually, Paul seems to have a sense that things are going to work out for him, that he will be released from prison. And he, he really hopes that he's going to visit these Philippian friends once again. And he's extremely confident that he's going to win the case and that things are going to work out and he will receive his deliverance, literally his salvation. But the key thing is this, whatever happens... He is confident in the sovereignty of God and that everything that is done is done for the glory of Jesus Christ. So whether he's released, whether he remains in prison, or even if he's executed, he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing in the sustaining power of God's Spirit and the encouragement of his praying friends. I wonder, do we fully grasp everything that Paul is saying here? Do you understand that if you are in Christ, you are utterly, utterly secure? If you're living and breathing at this moment, most of you seem to be good, good. Your purpose is to give glory to Jesus. And God has placed you in the place that he's put you, work, home, wherever, He's placed you there for the very purpose that you're a witness to his saving grace to those around you and that even death has got no hold of you. In fact, the very opposite is actually true. It's not the end of life. It's a gateway into eternal joy. And you, you must have noticed as you've, as you've listened to the, to the Bible verses being read that Paul doesn't see his own life or even his death as about himself. 
His concern, his love is for his brothers and sisters in Philippa, and almost certainly for the rest of, of, of God's people. He knows that by living, he will have an opportunity to both help and to teach and to encourage others. But he also knows that how he lives, how he copes with the suffering, in fact, even how he faces death himself will be a help and an example to them as well. For him, death personally is, is much better. But he is a slave and a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants to do God's will for their growth and for the joy of their lives. You know, you're called not merely to be a Christian, not even to live as a Christian. Paul says, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. It's everything. It's absolutely everything. The glory of Jesus is to be your foundation, your motive, your priority, your aim, the very reason and the purpose for your existence, the very heartbeat of your life. It's Christ. It's about Him. And how you deal with your circumstances and your situation is watched by everybody. Both those who know Jesus, and those who are not yet Christians, they watch, they see, they see. If you, you say, I'm a Christian, how do we live it out? Through the tough and the difficult times, people notice. Is Christ at the center of it? Is He in everything? And no matter how we look at this, as we look at these, this passage, we cannot get away from the fact that nothing can steal a man or woman's joy if they possess this single mind in Christ. If they can say along with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My wife loves to shop. Those who know her know that very well. And she, she particularly loves John Lewis over in, in Manchester. I'm not a fan, if I'm honest. The thought of spending a few hours walking around the women's clothing section on the second floor brings nervousness to my heart. <laughs> but when we go there, we walk in, and I, I just get a little glimpse of the technology section, and suddenly I become alive and interested. And she even loves me enough to let me go and play there for a while. <laughs> you know the thing that excites us and motivates us is the thing that really brings life to us. For Paul, it's Jesus. Christ is his everything. It's his life. Christ excites him. It makes his life worth living. And that's why Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is a valuable test for your life. What are you able to say? You say, for me to live is money, possessions, to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame, just to be well-liked and to be well-known. To die is to be forgotten. 
for me to live is power. If I just had, you know, control and power to die is to lose it. And we need to echo Paul's word and mean them if we are to find joy in every circumstance and to see the gospel advance. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. It needs to be our prayer, our focus. It needs to be something that we cultivate within our lives if we are to live in joy as Paul lived in joy. Listen, the source of your joy comes from a number of things. I want to suggest four just very quickly as we close. That is four. Good. Yeah, four. Just make sure you have four fingers still. First is this. Source of joy. Understand that you're forgiven. If you're struggling at the moment, go back to Jesus. Go back to the cross. Remind yourself of all that he has done for you. Remind yourself of, of all that he has, he has done in your life, how you were taken from darkness into life, how you received the forgiveness of God. Go back there. Spend time in God's word. Remind yourself of everything that he has done for you. Tomorrow night, Freedom in Christ starts. Listen, great place if you want to just find where your identity is and know what your identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ, come along tomorrow night at 7.30. Just join with us as we investigate that together. The second source of joy is trust in God. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I encourage you, take that verse, Romans 15, 13, memorize it, and then meditate on it this week. Allow it to speak into your heart. Ask God, God, what does it mean for me to trust you more, to deepen my trust in you? Holy Spirit, help me to do that. The third thought is this, take a long-range view. You know, the, crash, the, the, the stock market crashed again this week. It's pretty volatile at the moment, full of ups and downs. If you want to go to any financial advisor and they'll ask you what to do about your money, they'll say, leave it. Take a long-term view. It's biblical. We have an eternal inheritance, a joy that will not fade in heaven we need to take a long-term view. And things may not be good at the moment, but listen, the joy ahead of us will go on for all of eternity. We need to get a perspective of where we are with Christ. And the fourth thought is this, give thanks in all circumstances. You know, you may not feel like giving thanks at the moment, but I guarantee there is something that you could be thankful for speak it out. Make a list if that helps, but speak it out. Declare to God, God, I thank you. I thank you for my family. God, I thank you for, for everything that you, you've given to me. I thank you, God. Perhaps if, if you can think of nothing else, thank him for Jesus. But live with a thankful heart. You know, you are both responsible 
and also dependent on Christ to live in joy. It's both your responsibility, but also as a gift that the Holy Spirit pours into your life as well. And God is pleased when you're joyful. Christ came that you might have joy. The Holy Spirit is at work to produce joy. And we must have joy. It's given by the Holy Spirit. It is sought and searched out through time that we spend within the Scriptures. But listen, create a life that cultivates joy. It's time with Christ. It's ultimately keeping Him the very center of everything that you do. Let's stand together and pray. Father, your word is both a challenge to us and also an encouragement. And we thank you for examples like Paul that you give to us in the scriptures who are able to speak, who are able to prove, Lord, that we can live in hope and in joy because of Jesus Christ. And Father, I just pray, Lord, over myself, over my friends here, Holy Spirit, just just begin to pour out your love, to pour out your joy into our lives, Lord, that we would, would get hold of it, that we would search for it, that we would be captivated by you, Lord Jesus Christ. Just fill us with your spirit. Keep our focus on you, Jesus. Keep our attention on you. May you become our everything. Lord, you are a hope for now and forever. So Jesus just birthed within us this passion that would grow, this desire to go on. And as you work within us, Lord, then send us out. Lord, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the, Lord, that you would use our words, Lord, you even use our sometimes feeble attempts, but Lord God, that you would reach out to people, Lord, in this city. Father, I just pray for the doors of this place to be flung open, Lord Jesus, as your spirit and as your fire just spreads across the city. Lord, I pray, Father, that, Lord, you've called us to be those fires. So use as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.